Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey, where we bring compelling tennis stories to life. Today's guest really does have a remarkable story and an inspirational personality. It is a tennis story, but it's also a story of growing up in the midst of the destruction of the civil war in Sierra Leone. As such, my guidance would be, it isn't suitable for children. You may listen and decide otherwise, but I just wanted to let you know. Now back to the show. Today's guest is Sam Jallo. Sam was born in Sierra Leone. He grew up in poverty and first encountered tennis when he used to walk past a court, a court his dad said was for wealthy white people. Sam wasn't put off though and began playing tennis, at first with his hands before he impressed local coaches. A civil war ripped through Sierra Leone Sam encountered some horrific situations. Despite this, Sam's quest to play tennis for his country and pull on his nation's tracksuit continued. Fast forward today to today, and Sam joins us from Northwest England. And as you'll hear in this, the first of two podcasts with Sam, he has a truly remarkable story and a really inspiring personality. It's a story he tells in his book, How Tennis Saved My Life. I could talk and talk about Sam's story, but let's talk to the man himself. Welcome to the show, Sam Jallo. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me today. I'm so excited and I'm happy to be here. And um, yes, I think we're going to have fun in telling my story. It's an incredible journey, but again, I'm quite happy to be alive today to tell my story. So thank you so much, Rob. Hey, it's a pleasure. So Sam, let, let's start with those early years. Can you tell us about your experience in those early years of growing up in Sierra Leone? Well, yes, growing up in Sierra Leone, it was fun, it was tough, it was hard. And, um, you know, my parents had 11 of us and mom and dad never been to school. So, and uh, like I said, they had two to three jobs that they do. My dad worked eight days a week from Monday to Monday. So there was never a day off. And um, uh, my dad's salary was less than a tank with a month. And my mom as well go to the jungle and cut wood. So both me and my siblings, we, we struggle a lot. But another funny thing is uh, because my name is Samuel Porejalo. So when my parents, uh, they had three boys before me, they died. So when I was born, they gave me the name Pore, which is a girl's name. So uh, there was a traditional belief to say that there's an evil spirit, you know, killing the male child. So, you know, kids will provoke me when they find out I was called a girl in name Pore and things like that. But, you know, um, with all the condition that we live, because in our house, we didn't have electricity. There is no running water. We never had beds, so we slept on cardboards and uh, we slept on the floor. But uh, those were some of the best time for me. And then, um, you know, like I said, again, living in those conditions helped me to shape my life and to become, you know, the person I turned out to be. So childhood, when I was a kid till I was six years old, was really good with my parents, even though it was poor and tough. But um, and then after six years old, a lot of things change. And I mean, it's an interesting one because I believe in those really early years, food was really scarce, you know, at times. I mean, I even read somewhere that you had to eat cat food at times. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it must have been incredibly tough. It was tough because we only had one meal a day. And the reason for this is not because our parents wanted to condition us. It's because it was very difficult to get, you know, constant food to feed the family. And the cat food thing came, that was um, <clears throat> during the civil war. 
And when uh, in 1997, we had sanction and embargo. So during this time, because Sierra Leone's staple food is rice. So the rice come from China, Thailand, and India. So because we run out of food in the country, the country was in a lockdown. <laughs> and we had a Lebanese Sierra Leonean guy. He was an engineer who worked for the, a lot of the embassy. So they, they take all the, the foreign people out of Sierra Leone. So he was left as a caretaker for the embassy. So he found these uh, boxes of cat food. <laughs> I'm laughing now because every time I say this, people go like, oh, but it was, for, for now it sounds funny, but those days that was the best thing that ever happened to us. So he brought it and he go, well, I got nothing else today. Here we go with some <laughs> cat food. And that's what we're eating and it makes us survive. So again, it was, you know, survival. So it was tough. And, the, and you, I mean, incredibly tough and 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 so at what point in your childhood did the civil war start what what age sam well when i was six years old i was adopted because my dad was so poor and obviously he couldn't afford to you know to look after me and my other siblings and then my mom so what he did was um i uh, somebody offered to take me and then my dad gave me away when i was six so i was with my adopted family for three years but at some point I do go back and forth to see my mom. And then when the war started, when I was nine years old, and that was the same year uh, I got bored and tired with my adopted family. And then I ran away, so I was on the street. So whilst I was on the street in March, 1990, uh, 1991, that's when the civil war started. Incredible. And then things just got a whole lot tougher. Oh, yes, it gets, it gets so worse. I mean, the, the civil war in Sierra Leone, where we saw, you know, tens of thousands of uh, young kids, say, within the age of uh, four years and above, you know, were recruited into child soldiers. And these kids caused some of the most heinous and brutal crime in the country. And, um, you know, here I was on the street at that time, you know, as a nine-year-old kid trying to find my way around. And I was living constantly living on the street, living from family members to family members. I was living between my sister, my mom. And, you know, so it was a very, very tough time. And, and like I said, the war caused so much havoc that at the end of the war, there was over 120,000 people lost their life, over 1 million people were displaced. And I lost so many of my best friends, family members, you know, and um, yeah, so it, it was a very tough time. And you know, during the war, I was also captured many times, not because I commit crime. I tell you, Rob, I will even kill a fly. <laughs> but because I've always grown very muscular and um, playing uh, tennis, that was when I was in my teenage years. And I was always fit and so full of energy. So when the foreign soldier came from Nigeria and Ghana and other places, they didn't know who was who, who was rebel or not. So I always have these soldiers who take you to the checkpoint, tie your hands, step on your face and hit you with the gun and all kinds of things. But, you know, you just uh, you just hope to survive to live for the next day so that you can keep going. And um, and this, like I said, this situation was very bad, but it helped me to become a stronger person. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, you, you discovered the game of tennis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is, I tell you, I'm always laughing because, I mean, when somebody mentioned tennis, I don't know, it's like I'm drugged with tennis since I was born. So, you know, I was, uh, when my mom was going to the jungle to cut wood, she used to take me. And um, a place called Hill Station 
which this court were actually built by the British colonial settlers there. So it was a club where uh, after work, all the British and the clerks and workers would go and play tennis. So it was built, it was built in 1904. And um, so, so, you know, so I, uh, I see this tennis court every time we go to the jungle, me and my mom, and I used to stand at the fence, you know, looking at these well-dressed, you know, people, mainly white people and then few black people around. I said, wow, that's such a cool spot because they were well-dressed and, you know, they play against each other, somebody's over there. So anyway, I saw this as a child. But also, there's another popular sport in Sierra Leone called hand tennis, which uh, we played. So since I was like uh, four, five, six, we play hand tennis anywhere we can find a small space. But by then, I didn't even know about so much about uh, normal tennis. So we play hand tennis. And then... Um, and then when I was uh, eight years old, my mom and dad actually separated. So what happened is my mom had a new partner who lived 10 years away from the tennis court. So, so you know, they said things work in mysterious ways. So, and then um, when I was with my adopted family, so they used to make me go see my mom every week, every two weekends, because uh, I attempt running away from them before I turned nine. So when I go to see my mom, I will play hand tennis. And then my best friend introduced me to both bat tennis. So within a short period of time, I become good. So when I actually run away on the street and then I moved to my sister and then came to my mom, then the tennis court was there. <laughs> All I needed to do was to play. But again, another problem is we didn't have rackets. You didn't have rackets. And at that point, you didn't play in tennis shoes for, for a long period of time, did you? But you, um, your career developed and you, you started to get good and you started to, to play tournaments. And, and, yeah. and at that point, you realised, I think you had a little a dream of playing for Sierra Leone. And can you explain why there was two things really that drove this, wasn't there, along with the, the, but the tracksuit, but what came with it as well? Can you explain what, what that dream would mean for playing for Sierra Leone? Yes, and what happened, uh, Rob, is that uh, I overheard uh, kids when I was uh, quite young. I think it was uh, between the age of uh, 10, 11, and the kids uh, talking, and the boys say, oh, Sam, you know, uh, so-and-so are coming from Togo. They're going to play for Sierra Leone, and, you know, so he's uh, 14 years old, this is 13 years, and, you know, and I'm thinking, they go to play for what? Sierra Leone? And they said, yes. I said, the kids at this age said, yes. Oh, yes, they go. They play for the national team in the junior, ITF junior. And I go, wow, okay. Then now I got something to work towards because I want to play for Sierra Leone if this is the case. And then um, he said, oh, you know, they give them 250 US dollar, you know, for allowances. They give us like 250 US dollar. Oh my goodness. Now this kid is, my new dream is just like, I can't even know how to start this dream. I want the 250 US dollar. And the last thing he said to me, he said, you know what I like about the team is, he said, they, they give them national tracksuit. Ah, this even fired me up more than anything. Like, I want this national tracksuit. I want, I want the money, the tracksuit. I want to play tennis. So, and for me, the money was more, um, like I said, 150 US dollar would sustain my family for half a year. Now, what people don't realize, people say, well, that's not a lot of money. I say, yes, but in Sierra Leone in those days, it was a lot of money because a 50 kilo bag of rice was less than $10. So all I need to do is to buy six bags of uh, uh, 50 kilo, six bag of those, 
So, so that's a 300 kilos of rice that will sustain my family, my mom, my dad, my sisters <clears throat> for half a year, including myself. And then $50 can pay for my school fee and then the rest I can take for the tournament. So that was my calculation and the tracksuit. But little did I know that tennis is a very harsh sport. And, you know, and I tried and tried. And every time I get to the semifinal, I keep failing, failing. The thing is, Sam, the thing is, it's like, you know, I, we have a 10-year-old and I take along to tournaments and I feel like tennis is a tough sport. You know, you have to go out on stage and perform and, and there's a little bit of pressure, but there's no pressure on my son compared to the fact that you know that if you qualify and if you got to the final, was it, or did you have to win the tournament to play for Sierra? You have to get to the final. and You had and to the, get to the final. Yeah, you have to get to the final of the nationals or if they do a round-robin qualifying. And, and the thing is, it was like, for example, the under 14 is like over 30 kids and they only won two. And then same with the under 16 and the under 18. There's a lot of children from different parts of the city and we were too over competitive. And, you know, like I said, I didn't have shoes. I had no rackets. I played uh, barefoot tennis, which, <laughs> you know, today when I do a lot of speaking in schools, I take my shoes off just to show the kids what my feet look. I got literally three, three nails out of 10 left. So that's how much damage uh, happened to my foot. And anyway, so yeah, so we got a lot of kids who want to qualify and then the association didn't have enough money. So sometimes you even qualify and then they go, well, we haven't got sponsor, we haven't got money. So it was so many ups and downs and so many things that could go wrong in those days. How did, like, even psychologically at this point, you know, you're, you're making it to the semi-final. Did you manage to like play your best tennis or was the fact that you were you were out there to help your family out I mean that must have made a tremendous pressure or, or were you good at an early age of dealing with that pressure and, and putting it to one side I was very good at dealing with pressure and of course you're going to feel some pressure because you know my quest for tennis it has a lot of different areas so this is why today when I teach kids when they tell me they're nervous I look at them and said I don't know what you're nervous about do you want me to go play for you uh, if I can be young as you, I'll be on that court and I enjoy myself. <laughs> but the, the fact is that um, my upbringing allows me to deal with pressure. From a very young age, you've been given so many uh, responsibilities. I'll give you one example. When I was adopted, I was sent to go buy kerosene. I was seven years old. And on my way, I met the kids playing football and then I end up playing football with them and losing the money and didn't have the kerosene. So when I came home, I got the worst beating, one of the worst beating ever. Wow. So that taught me a lesson to say that when a responsibility is given to you, whether you're under pressure, whether your arm is broke, your leg is broke, you must keep those responsibilities intact because other people depended on you. So every mistake you make, people depended on you. So it teach me. So I could handle a lot of the pressure. But in, in playing in the first round and second round, third round, those kind of things, I never had that much pressure. Is when I get to the semifinal, that's where my problem seems to be. And the kid who was playing mainly because he was the second best player in the country, I was like between the third and fourth. So I keep bumping into the same person. So, yes, the thinking about my mom, thinking about the, you know, the tracksuits and the money and all this kind of thing, had a little bit pressure. But that I could handle because that's why I decided to play tennis. And by the way, I was uh, the best junior goalkeeper in the whole of Sierra Leone. But I decided to tell my coach, look, I'm not doing football anymore. I'm going to play this 
white man sport. And that's the sport I want to play. And he thought I was drunk. And wow. so, yeah, so the, the, in terms of pressure, I learned to deal with that in an early age. But the more I lose and didn't qualify every year, the harder it become, the more pressure I pile in myself. But something changes, which we'll talk about later. And well, let's come on to that. That was there was a there was a there was a tragedy. There was a real low point in in your life, um, which actually led to the inspiration. Um, the yes, memory. can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was actually on Valentine's Day, nineteen ninety eight. So four days after my sixteenth birthday. So I had my best friend, who is Alimami, who is um, you know sometime in life, Rob. I think God brings certain people in our life you know, like they will help you. It's almost like when somebody say, you look at the falling star, the meteorite, they just come, they flash, and then they go, they teach you a lesson and then they go. So this guy, uh, we met, you know, we like each other as friends and he taught me how to play better hand tennis. He taught me how to play board bar tennis and I start beating him. But in tennis, he was better than me because he was older than me. And then he reached a point where I start beating him. So he kept me going. So on this day, on Valentine's Day, and um, we wake up that morning. He actually woke me up. So we came out of the tennis court and, um, you know, and here we were as little kid. The attack has happened, figuring out, okay, what do we do now? Do we go, you know, to the east? Do we go to the west? Because now the soldiers are coming and they're killing so many people. And this is and where we, bomb, bombs are literally falling down. Yes, because we have the, the military jets. Because we actually, Hill Station is only half a mile from the military barracks, which is the first battalion. So when the Nigerians were the foreign troops were attacking, that was the main target area. And then in my area, they have the rebel leader at that time, who was somebody called uh, Sambokari, who is notoriously known in Africa for his brutality. So he was living half a mile away from me. So we got all these people who were wanted by the foreign soldiers. So our area was so much under pressure. So while the bomb was going, bullets, military jets, I could name each and every military guns in the county. I could just even name them just by the sound, even though I've never been in the army, but just for yeah. the constant shooting and killing. And then, so anyway, I stood next to Alimami like this. We stood uh, uh, towards each other. And then a friend who's called Farrell, his uncle was a security. He was in the army. We all grew up together. So he was coming down from the side of the tennis court and the jet was trying to bomb the, the, the radio station. So we live up the hill and he missed. So he dropped it down by the valley and then the explosion. And he said to me, oh, Sam, do you want to see this? Anyway, so it took 15 seconds. And then, of course, he had rapid AK-47 behind me. And then when I turn, it's my friend, her mommy just been constantly being shot by someone just on the chair. So, you know, I tell you, Rob, uh, I've had so many adversities in my life. I've had so many tragedies you know, losing even my sisters, but seeing that somebody who you were so close, your best friend, somebody who have brought you to that height of playing tennis, of everything we go to school, being brutally, you know, murdered. That, that moment really, I don't know what happened there, but something just changed in me. And the, the worst bit was my mom, as just when she uh, saw me and she saw him being shot, my mom started running towards us. So she walked toward, around towards us and then um, she got very close and my mom stopped. And I'm there screaming for my friend. I couldn't care less about the bullets going, the bomb whatsoever. All I was doing was just, you know, trying to make my friend stay alive. Unfortunately, with that many bullets, it's not gonna 
it would take a miracle for him to be alive. So I knew, and then I watched him there, took his last breath. And then once he took his last breath and my mom was looking at me, staring at me and, you know, and we look at each other and I saw my mom, tears run down her face and I was crying. And that's when the reality hit me that, you know, from now on I'm on my own and I need to stay alive for my mom and I need to stay alive for my friend. And um, I, in fact, that was the, the, the day I decided if I'm playing tennis, if it means that I have to lose my legs, my arms, just to make it to the national team, just for my friend to, to be proud of me because, you know, we believe that people are in heaven, they're looking down upon you. Tell you, Rob, that was my turning point. That was really what kick-fired me and said, you know what, I got to behave myself. I got to be now be careful and I want to make sure that my mom never, never put my mom in that situation where she has to cry and feel that I'm going to lose my life again and also for my friends. So out of that tragic situation uh, comes fortune for me, but again, unfortunate to see my best friend was killed in front of me. And uh, I mean, such a, you know, horrific tale and just so sad, but it gave you the spur to yeah. you know, really dedicate yourself to to what it was you wanted to achieve, which which was this representing Sierra Leone. I mean, it must have taken. Uh, at what point did you return to that tournament and, and talk us through what happened when you when you went back? Well, after after Ali Mami died, it was uh, three weeks uh, no tennis because we actually left that uh, that day, and uh, me and my coach. And um, he took me and got me out of there, but he passed away in 2006 as well. And um, so we went uh, towards the Atlantic Ocean in a place called Lombly. And um, so we, we stayed here for three weeks. And then after when the ECOMO finally cleared the whole city, they, ca they captured the city. So we came back to Hill Station. And then it was a week after that, the only place, the only thing we can do, even though when we came back, so many people, they say, oh, so-and-so died house have been burnt down. I mean, they don't need to tell you that you can see it. And so, you know, so the only thing I start doing is go back to the wall and start uh, training. But going back to the same place where you've just lost your best friend and other friends, it's very daunting. But I think, again, given the fact that you learn that as long as I'm alive, I'm going to do what I have to do because people dying, I'm not in control of that. If it's left to me, nobody will ever die. But um, so that kept me going. But anyway, and then eight months after that, it was in October of uh, 1998. And then the national coach who has always, he's been a big fan of me. In fact, he lives in London now. And um, so he said to me, you know, Sam, I've always admired your enthusiasm about tennis you played. And I think there's a chance for you to qualify. And if you play your best, of course, I know we've just come from all this trouble, but the rule says, we cannot just select people. We have to go through the same process of, you know, so it was 16 of us. We did a, a normal tournament. So I finished uh, in the top eight. So what they do is they pick the top eight and then they do a two, like the O2 kind of thing. They do two parts, the four yeah. players here, four here, and then you play each other and then the two best automatically qualify. So you have to win your group stage. And here I am again with Gabriel, <laughs> same the same, my same uh, opponent who always keep, oh, this boy. And here I was again with him. I was thinking, oh, no, can they send Gribble to the best player? But the candidate, because he was the number two seed, 
So they have number one here and number two here. And then, so I have to be with him because <laughs> that's the way things goes. But anyway, so when it comes to the final game is I've won my uh, first two matches. So now I got to play Gabriel. He's won his own order. So, so we're going to face in each other to see who won that. And then this was, um, when I remember, in fact, in the match, it was uh, one set all. And we keep going back and forth, back and forth. And then at um, five all, he was serving. And then he got really nervous for the first time because he came from a very middle-class family. He got everything. Yeah. And he was a smart kid. His dad is a, a principal in a school in a second city called CKC, which is the school that produced some of the best tennis players and best leaders in the country. So it's the school that we both go to. Anyway, so in the... And five all, I remember, he starts double faulting. So me now start thinking, okay, this is for Almami. If I can break him, because one of my biggest strengths is myself. I mean, I train with ATP players. Some of them even tell like, blow me neck. <laughs> Sorry, my language. I mean, if, if the, the way the ball goes through. So that's why I sent you the, the video of me yeah. and uh, Benjamin uh, playing a match in Spain. And Benjamin actually said to me after that, Boy, I don't want to play on a hard court or grass court. If this is how you can serve on a clay court. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Gabriel, he lost his serve and then I won it. The weirdest thing is when I went to the changeover, all that was in my head, it was nothing to do with traveling. It was not the tracksuit. It was not the $250. I could care less about these things. That didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. I didn't even think about, oh, I'm just uh, close to fulfilling my dream. All that came to my head is, if I win this, Alimami will fall down from heaven, you know, with joy, because this is one person who wanted me to play for Sierra Leone so badly. Anyway, so going behind the line, I could still remember these things like it happened yesterday. And I remember I said, I got a bigger self than anyone here, so I'm just gonna go all out for it. It's like, you don't even have any plan. It's like what Boris Baker said. I don't even know where I'm going to serve until I even toss the ball. <laughs> so I just go, okay, I'm just going to slam it as hard and just make sure that they get into that box. And then this, it, it happened. But when I was 40 love up, again, that devil of nerves came for the first time again, the heavy nerves. And I was really, really shaking because okay. then you start thinking about the consequences about, wow, I'm actually beating the person who have always fallen short of Sam, and, I know I know you must go on and win this match, but I am now nervous. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, I, I and and the, the, the weird thing about being nervous, even when you're 40 love up, I watch Andy Murray. I mean, the day Andy Murray won, I was yeah. moonwalking in because there is no bigger fan for Andy Murray than me because yeah. I knew what he was going through. I've been to me and him have some kind of similar, you know, with his school, with all this kind of thing and the British pressure and you know winning the first British man to win Wimbledon. So those, I understand this kind of thing. And I remember um, at that 40, all I say, you know what? I can just hit this as hard as possible and be ready for whatever come because you never know. And then that's when I decided I'm going to put this ball right at his body. And this is something I've trained all my life because uh, thank God my, my coach that I have, he was one of the biggest seven in the country. And he gave me from a uh, young start and said, if nothing else can help you in tennis, just make sure you're able to serve. Yes. So, and, and because also I was serving on the wall, sometimes I listened to him serve. 
you can hear the wall almost like crying, pow, when the ball hit the wall. And I start emulating that. So when I go on court and I, if, even here, when I came to England, people used to say, Flaminek, you sound like you're angry. I said, no, I'm not angry. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so you put the surf down and you got yeah. the game, huh? Yeah. And then what happened, because uh, he, he, would have, uh, he was thinking that I'm going to serve to his backhand because that's where most of the time I'll go with the big one when I'm, you know, yeah. winning on the pressure. Oh, you go to the T, but that going to the T will be 30%. The rest, 70% will be going to the back end. So, and I think, well, I haven't done much body serve. So why not me just try something? So just not to give him anything to think about. So yeah. I decided to go really close to the line. So he just shift and then put his back end and then the ball just floats in the air. Boy, oh boy. And my overhead is also one of my biggest, you know, uh, strength. I mean, I slammed the ball so hard. <laughs> I would have, I would have not loved to see that come back. But and the oh. joy of thinking, wow! I even today now I'm, I'm speaking, I can still feel the same joy. You know, uh, thinking about yes, Alimami will be proud. And I remember walking back home. You know, uh, thinking to myself, wow! What am I going? How am I going to even explain this to my mom, who has seen me go through so many pain, yeah. thing, trying to make it in this one sport? that I just endlessly just seems to be falling and falling, but here I was. Wow. And then that's, yeah. So wow. that was a turning point. So you, so you did it. And, and so what happened next? Well, and then <laughs> on the 17th of December, 1998, it was a Sunday. So we were on the tennis court outside. We're talking, we're chatting. And um, we're talking football, me and my 12, uh, 11 other of my colleagues. And um, so, yeah, so whatever happened, turn to my left, it's a convoy of military soldiers coming towards the president because they've reinstated the elected president who was overthrown. And he lived 600 yards away from the tennis court. So believe it or not, and so the guy who was in charge of the Sierra Leone Army was a Nigerian guy who was in charge of the whole county called General Maxwell Kobe. I mean, he, this guy has no joke in his bone because <laughs> he was in charge and then the, the rebels, you know, as we know, they were very brutal. So, so when I turned, me and my colleagues, we moved to the side of the road and me, I've always been very comedic. I'm always making joke with everyone. Yeah. So I just did this to him and I'm waving, pulling phases. And then as soon as he passed, that's when we realized like, oh my God, that's General Maxwell Kobe. But being teenagers, we just didn't think anything. Two minutes later, a military truck pulled over and captured all of us, threw us in the truck and they took us to the military prison. Oh. So which is half a mile down the road. So that's only seven days before we actually travel, you know, and um, so I remember when we got to the prison, so this is where the title of my book came out of this incident. And- um, Joe, the book, by the way, um, yeah. that tennis saved my life. That um, tennis saved my life. I got a copy. I'm, I was so made up when you received that today. And, um, and then underneath the subtitle is actually play tennis, not war. Yeah. So most people don't see the subtitle. And um, so anyway, so we got to the military barracks and these guys, they pull us out of the truck. I took a slap on my face, gone hit in my head because I was asking, they're trying to ask the guy, what have we done? 
and where are we going? And they will have none of it. Oh, they will slap the living monkey out of you. So anyway, the soldiers, they have all these big helmets and then they got dark glasses. And it was a special Nigerian force. And these guys were as big as me. I mean, not then because I was very skinny then, but now yeah. the, the huge guys who were security to him. So, and this guy just grabbed me behind my coat and he was pulling me and then he pushed me and used the gun and pushed me. But he was in the front seat of the car. So he must have told the, the driver and the other soldiers uh, not to do anything to me. But I didn't know that. But in my head, when he put the gun to me and he was directing me behind the prison, and I thought, oh, he's going to go shoot me because, you know, I was the one doing the silly thing to the military commander. So anyway, and um, all of a sudden, he called my name PJ because they, they call me PJ at home for porridge or short for porridge or Some people call me SPJ as an abbreviation of my name. So he said PJ, but you know, when that happened, you think, am I dreaming or is, is it him that is calling me and how is this guy know me? So anyway, I have prayed. And one thing I will make here, Rob, which is very important for people to understand. You know, people ask me, were you scared? Were you this? Yes, I was scared in the beginning. But at that point, when he put the gun behind me and giving me direction where to go, and my other colleague, I see they're going into the prison, and I'm going behind the prison, I'm thinking, well, that's the end of me. So I totally accept that today I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. The only thing is I quickly have a flashback of my mom. You know, my friend Alimami said, well, if I'm going to go meet him in heaven, I'm prepared for this. And for whatever reason, the fear of dying, after I finished my prayer, completely dissolved. I was not given, it's, I didn't even care if this guy pulled the trigger or not at that time, because I decided, you know, they're gonna kill me. That's what's gonna happen. But anyway, so he pushed me and directed me and he said, um, he called me again, he said, PJ is missed, Julius. And then that's when I realized Julius was the guy who I play tennis with all the time. So when they settled, he loved tennis and then he also does martial art with me. So Julius, fortunately, was part of the soldiers they sent. I mean, how is this even possible? Yeah. Sometimes I'm asking this thing. So Julius said, it's, it's me. So he's whispering because he doesn't want anyone to know that he's cornered me. Of course, he's putting his own uh, life at risk yeah. for me. And he said, PJ, I'm just going to tell you, this is really bad. I want you to run. Go wherever. I don't want to see you again. So I tell you, oh, Rob. I always make a joke and say, Usain Bolt would have never keep up with me. I was running, running. And even through that, you have the fear that sometimes they do this thing and then they, because a lot of the way they kill the kids, they tell them to go and then they shot them. So anyway, and, you know, here I was and I went to my uncle's house in the military barracks because my uncle was living there. So I was under the bed from that morning till eight o'clock at night. I wouldn't come off the bed, no water, no drink. I, yeah, I was there. And then, so anyway, to cut long story short, seven days later, and I went to see my dad on the Saturday, so which was on the 19th of December. Yeah. And I've just received my tracksuit. I receive, uh, you know, my allowance. And I leave 150 US dollar for my mom, which was changed into our currency so that they get all the food. And then, um, the club members, the Lebanese and the other rich people, they gathered some money. So I got over $300. So I went to see my dad uh, who have threatened me that if I ever play, he described tennis as a rich white man's sport. 
So I mean, fair to my dad, we don't know anyone who played tennis in Sierra Leone by then because the sport was there, but it wasn't too popular to the local people. So my dad, uh, his words was when I said that, this is the sport I want to play, he said, I'm going to cut all your fingers if you ever touch <laughs> or play that rich white man's sport. So anyway, I remember that Saturday. It was afternoon and I went to him. I go, dad, <clears throat> here is a 50 US dollar. And if you change it in our currency, this is what you get. My dad like, oh, and then he even asked me, where are you going? Who's taking you? And I said, well, this is to play for Sierra Leone. And then, you know, I'm so grateful. For the first time, which I'm very emotional and I even talking about this, for the first time, my dad ever, ever, you know, praised me for something, thanked me and hugged me and prayed for me. And I can remember the last look on my dad's face when he looked at me like almost like I'm proud of my son. But yeah. This is where my determination comes that uh, when I teach tennis today, you know, I said, you got to be determined. you got to be so self-determined to prove people wrong because tennis is a sport to prove people wrong. Like Rafa, he, oh, he will never win grass court. Well, I'll win. He will never win hard court. Well, he's won everything. So, you know, you got to constantly prove in yourself and people wrong. And um, so, yeah, it was very emotional to see my dad so happy and me wearing my tracksuits and then, you know, seven days later, here I was going to my first ITF tournament in Ghana. So that brings to an end the first part of this uh, podcast with, with Sam. Uh, what an incredible journey Sam's already had. Um, and the second part, as you'll hear, is just as remarkable. Um, so please do hit uh, subscribe if you're on Apple or follow if you're on Spotify. Um because then uh, hopefully you'll get an update when the, the next uh, chapter with Sam comes out. Uh, in the meantime, Sam, Sam's book, um, How Tennis Saved My Life. If you, if you search for that, you'll find his book, which is just an incredible read. Um, a massive thanks to uh, Sam for, for taking the time to tell us his story. Thanks to you guys for listening. And yeah, look forward to welcoming you back to my tennis journey sometime soon.